A disciple is emptied of self-esteem to be filled with esteem for Christ and his cross. As we continue this sermon series on the Beatitudes, as we're looking at the portrait of a disciple that Jesus gives, today we'll be looking at the first Beatitude in verse 3, but we'll read the entire passage. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we read verses 3 through 12. Now God's word for God's people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And may God the Holy Spirit revive our souls with God's word this morning. You may be seated. And let us pray. God, our Father, as we come to this passage looking specifically at the Lord Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit, unfold before us the meaning of this text and how it applies to your people Enable us to see that your disciple is first and foremost spiritually poor before you. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I have a little assignment for you. You'll notice in the bulletin that the title of this sermon is not a typo. The title is The Blessedness of Low Self-Esteem. I would like to ask you to please take your writing utensil and mark out low, L-O-W, mark it out, and write in in capital letters, N-O. Blessed is the one with no self-esteem. The Mayo Clinic defines self-esteem on their resource website in this way, which by the way is consistent with how many in our culture define self-esteem. So the Mayo Clinic says this, your self-esteem is your overall opinion of yourself, how you feel about your abilities and limitations. When you have healthy self-esteem, according to this online resource, you feel good about yourself and see yourself as deserving the respect of others. And we might Christianize this just a little bit and add deserving God's approval. 
Well, here are a few comments from a biblical world and life view about self-esteem. First, low self-esteem is not our problem, writes one Gospel Coalition author. He continues, Scripture tells us we were born with the opposite issue, I would say problem. We all think of ourselves as a little more pretty. I know that's not grammatically correct, but that's what he said. A little more talented, a little more worthy, and a little more deserving of just about everything in this life. Far from having naturally broken hearts, our hearts are naturally bloated with the calories of self-consumption and filled with obscene levels of self-obsession. We've been taught that there's nothing more valuable than how much we value ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. Jerry Bridges writes, We live in a culture that promotes self-esteem. And I'm concerned that this attitude has permeated the body of Christ. We see ourselves as better than we are. We look at sinful society around us, and we can be like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then the most profound statement with regards to a biblical view of self-esteem are the very words of Jesus when he said in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come to see that a disciple is meant to have no self-esteem as he or she stands before holy God. Today we'll look at the type, extent, and purpose of this poverty of spirit to which Jesus refers in Matthew 5 and verse 3. First, the type of poverty a disciple is to have the type of poverty a disciple is meant to have is spiritual poverty, not physical. So some interpret Jesus' words to mean that the materially or physically poor are in mind here in Jesus' words. And Jesus is not teaching at all that physical or material poverty is some virtue. If it were, then why are we commanded in Scripture to alleviate the needs of the poor? As Dr. Boyce says. Others take Jesus' meaning here in verse 3 to say it's the, it's the poor spirited person. That is, the person with low self-esteem. The, the person that has a poor image of her or himself. 
And clearly Jesus is, is not suggesting here that he is referring to one who is poor and who's, who is poor spirited they have a low self-esteem no jesus is speaking of one who is spiritually poor who who has poverty of of spirit and it reflects a realistic and honest view of that person of how he or she really is as he or she stands before holy god well, let's look today at the prophet Isaiah. Appreciate Bill reading Isaiah chapter 6. It's very, that's a very significant text in this whole question about being poor in spirit. Isaiah 6 is Isaiah, especially verse 5, is Isaiah's view of himself, the view that he came to embrace about himself as he was there, had been, he had been taken up, into the very throne room of God in heaven. And so Isaiah came to see who he really was before holy God in verse 5. And Isaiah, Isaiah's view of himself is summarized in one word. One word that's often spoken twice or thrice by the Old Testament prophet. It is the word in verse 5, woe. It's a technical term that the Old Testament prophets often used when they were instructed by God to call down judgment upon others or even a people. They would say, woe to you. Here Isaiah says, woe to me. His view of himself was that he was unclean. He was undone. He was ill-deserving. He was an object of God's wrath. He caused judgment upon himself. That's Isaiah's self-image. <laughs> I am an object of God's wrath. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Every person who comes to Jesus Christ, who is united to him in saving faith, must experience this very realistic and honest view of oneself before God. And as I, Isaiah stood before God having a true understanding of his natural self, his spiritual state can only be described as sinner. And we would also add theologically one who is totally depraved. I remind us of the words from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature.
nature, our true selves before God, our true selves apart from Christ, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the only response is, woe to me. I am undone. I am unclean. I only deserve judgment. Have you come to that place? A disciple is one emptied of self-esteem. No self-esteem. Only to be filled with esteem for Christ and his cross. Second, the disciple is not only spiritually poor, that type of poverty, but poor in extent. The Greek has two words for poverty. One word refers to having little. We think of the widow in Luke chapter 21. Remember the widow? She was poor. She had very little. In fact, she had only two copper coins which she proceeded to put in the offering receptacle there at the temple. She was poor. But at least she had two copper coins. There's another Greek word that denotes someone who is poor, but they have nothing. They don't even have two copper coins. They are destitute. We might think of the word abject poverty as being a good way to understand this, this second type of poverty in the Greek. And when we think of abject poverty, the widow was poor, but at least she had two copper coins. But Lazarus, the poor man that sat outside the rich man's gate in Luke 16, he didn't even have two copper coins. He had nothing to his name. He was, he is an example of abject poverty. Poor in spirit in Matthew 5 and verse 3 is not the widow who at least had two copper coins in Luke 21. It's Lazarus who had nothing in Luke 16. And Lazarus represents someone in utter hopelessness. We see this in Isaiah's situation. Isaiah Isaiah probably had a lot of money stashed away. I mean, he was not poor in the sense of the widow. So materially, he probably had resources. But he was spiritually bankrupt. In Isaiah 6 and verse 5, no doubt Isaiah's view of himself was spiritually being abjectly poor destitute. And we see the extent of his poverty in that he could not rectify his situation. 
He was under judgment. And there was no way, the text doesn't give any indication that Isaiah had a plan to extricate himself out from under, woe to me, God's judgment. If God did nothing, Isaiah was doomed because he was destitute, had nothing to give God, could do nothing to remedy the situation. He had nothing in his hands. And it's only because God acted through that seraphim who took that coal, that hot burning coal from the altar with the holy tongues and placed that red hot coal upon Isaiah's lips, the very part of Isaiah's anatomy that he said was so sinful that represented his total depravity. And Isaiah received God's grace. He was forgiven. He was restored. Even to the point where later God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, send me. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about God's salvation. He deals with our sin problem. But he also, and he restores us, but he also gives us the privilege of serving him in furthering the gospel cause worldwide. So Isaiah represents this spiritual bankruptcy, this abject spiritual poverty. Again, Jerry Bridges, this abject poverty of spirit comes from the awareness of our own dreadfully sinful condition. And certainly Isaiah experienced that dreadful sinful condition. Hey, do you guys have a, is your self-esteem going up? I'm just curious because I want to be encouraging to you. scriptures give us a vivid picture of one who views himself before God as abject, spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, destitute. I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I do apologize, this is not written in the bulletin. Luke 18, 9 through 14. It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. An earlier quote referenced the Pharisee. I want to read this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all 
that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so just to clarify, if you really wanted to call someone a really no-good-for-nothing rotten sinner, you'd probably call him a tax collector in the first century. The Pharisees' words, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like those extortioners. I'm not like those unjust guys. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give, God, I thank you. And you should be thankful, God, that I am so good as I am. It really reveals the view this Pharisee had of himself, doesn't it? And it's, it's pretty clear that he felt and viewed himself very highly. He was righteous before God. He had what many today would call a healthy, if not high self-esteem. Now, before we come down too hard on the Pharisee, let's look in the mirror. How often do we overvalue and boast in our own spirituality, piety, abilities to obey God and to do the things that Christ calls us to do? We may say to ourselves, God, I know, and I'm sure you know, God, I'm not like those other sinners. I have value. And you should be glad that I'm in your kingdom. Now, you can sense the hyperbole that I use there but let's be honest. That's how we think sometimes. And that's certainly how we want other people to think of us, that we have value in the kingdom. Well, con contrast this with the tax collector. <laughs> he was so emptied of self-worth. He was so humbled that he was face down on the ground. Somehow, in being face down on the ground, still beating his breast, crying out for mercy, he was, he was so humbled, so emptied of self-esteem that he could not even, and just picture this, could not even you know, try to glance up at the corner of his eye up toward heaven. He, he was so ashamed and broken before God. He was crushed. He did not say, God, I thank you. I'm not like all those other horrible sinners. But he cried out for mercy. And he, in effect, 
says, or he said, God be merciful to me, implying because I am worse than the most horrible sinner in your sight, God. I am nothing. The ESV translates the Greek, uh, sinner. Do you see that? But in actuality, it is the sinner. What comes before the word sinner is the definite article that we translate the. Now, why is that significant? Because it points to the fact that in Jesus' parable, he is showing that this, that this man did not consider himself simply to be one among many sinners. He considered himself to be the sinner, the worst of the worst. It was as if this man viewed himself as if there were no other sinners on the face of the planet. He was the only one. He was the sinner. I mean, he owns it. He had no self-esteem before God. John Blanchard writes, he was so overwhelmed with the sense of his sin, his moral bankruptcy, and his spiritual destitution that as far as he was concerned, anyone else's sin paled into insignificance by comparison. The sinner depicts what Jesus meant when he said poor in spirit. Not only did Jesus say my disciple will have this type of poverty, spiritual poverty before God, but he also said that the extent of it is wholesale bankruptcy, destitution. I am the sinner. And let me just pause and ask this question to all of us. Is our view of ourselves before God like that of Isaiah? Is it like that of Lazarus? And is it like that of this tax collector? For such as these three are the citizens of heaven. Did you get that? For such are in the kingdom those who are spiritually bankrupt before God. A disciple is one emptied of self-esteem only to be filled with esteem for Christ and his cross. And then lastly, the purpose of poverty. This beatitude depicts not only the first beatitude, but the foundation of the other seven. In fact, the other seven build on this Beatitude. If you're looking for a self-esteem builder, Matthew 5.3 is not the place to turn. It's not the place to turn because, to turn because it's a self-esteem crusher, and that's part of its purpose. But it also has a purpose in building esteem. Wait a minute. You just, you just told me the purpose of the Beatitude was to empty us of self-esteem, to crush it. And then you're, you're saying, but the other purpose, the other beatitude is to build esteem. Notice what I said. 
build esteem, not self-esteem, but to build esteem for Christ and his cross. The emptying and filling whereby we actually live as we are as a disciple, poor in spirit, is a work of grace by the Holy Spirit in those united to Christ in saving faith. Therefore, being poor in spirit is not optional as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being poor in spirit is not for the elite disciple, for the special disciple, for the gifted one. No, it is for all and every disciple of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is to be one who views him or herself before God as spiritually bankrupt. Isaiah, Lazarus, tax collector. And in need of God to act graciously we view ourselves as spiritually bankrupt. We view ourselves as judged if God doesn't do something like get a tongue from the altar and bring it and apply it to us. And the good news is that God does something. He acts graciously. He is merciful towards us. He rectifies our situation of no self-esteem, of being under judgment in Christ and through Christ. He acts. And this is the purpose of the first beatitude. To empty us of self-esteem, that we might be filled with esteem for Christ and his cross. To be a disciple is to view ourselves in this way, poor in spirit, our entire Christian lives from justification all the way to glorification. That, this is what, this is the foundational characteristic of being a disciple for Christ. The disciple is not emptied of self-esteem at conversion and then been there, done that, that's over, now I can move on to greater and higher exploits in the Christian life building up my, my own esteem by these religious works. That's not what happens. Yes, we are emptied of self-esteem at conversion, but, it's, but yet we grow in being emptied of self-esteem throughout the Christian life. Poor in spirit defines the disciple of Jesus Christ from justification to glorification. It's not something we do and it's done and we move on. It's something that is to be our view every day before God. I mean, I hate to tell you, and I know the, the, the psychology, the psychological world and professionals and maybe many in the counseling department and sadly to say many in the church would say, are you crazy in telling people no self-esteem? That's exactly what the Bible, what Jesus is telling us. I can't think of a more opposite teaching than this. 
the world says, have a healthy self-esteem. The greatest value is valuing yourself. And Jesus says, poor in spirit. No self-esteem before God. The true disciple experiences a growing awareness of his or her utter spiritual bankruptcy before God throughout his or her Christian life. It's a growing awareness. It's very much like a gospel-centered understanding of Christian maturity. It is not the case that Christian maturity is we get better and better and better. Now, we do grow in fruit, and yes, there, are, there is that. But the reality is a better definition, a gospel-centered definition of Christian maturity is that I have a growing awareness of my own sinfulness as I have a growing awareness of God's holiness and I have a growing understanding of my need for a bigger and bigger Jesus. So a, a mature Christian is one who, like John Owen, big sinners need a big Jesus. I see my need for Jesus more. And I think the same can be applied here to this. That as I have a growing awareness of my true self before God, no self-esteem. Paul views himself as a mature Christian as the foremost of sinners. First Timothy. 115. You know, a disciple at conversion may have a degree of awareness about his true self before God, but an old Christian should have even more. The more we walk with Christ, the more we should have the view of ourselves before God, like Isaiah, like Lazarus, and like the tax collector. Being emptied, why? In order to be filled. You see, this poor in spirit functions to drive us to Christ. This no self-esteem functions to trust Christ and to cry out for mercy where that coal is taken from the altar and applied to deal with our sin and our unworthiness. We never stop being poor in spirit. Our view of our own spiritual bankruptcy should grow over time. Therefore, we never stop needing Christ. We never stop being dependent on his grace. And we never stop experiencing his amazing grace that our esteem for him builds exponentially. We are emptied of self-esteem in order to be filled by grace with esteem for Christ and his cross. Isaiah was emptied and crushed, brought low before God. He was nothing, abject spiritual poverty, object of God's wrath. And what did God do? God worked and atone for Isaiah's sin by taking that coal from the altar. What a beautiful picture of Christ and his cross applied to the sinner, you and me. 
The tax collector was empty, crushed, humble. He could not even lift the corner of his eye to Christ or to God in heaven. He pled for mercy. And what did God do? He showed mercy to him. The tax collector got up and he went home, what? Justified. We understand that, justified, of course, on the merits of Christ. The purpose of God in this, this first beatitude is that it depicts one being empty of self-esteem only to be filled with the grace of Christ where our esteem for him and his cross grows. May God crush our self-esteem. May he empty us of our self-value. May we see our true self before him, spiritually bankrupt, that we would flee to him, that we would flee to him who is faithful to dispense his mercy and grace. May we flee to him who forgives us, who atones for our sin, who justifies us, who is growing us through sanctification, who adopts us as his children, who works in us, who fills us with esteem, not for self, but for him and his cross. Paul, as he was talking about and grappling with struggling with this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, in 2 Corinthians 12 said this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And we may insert, I will boast all the more gladly in, in my no self-esteem, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And to the Galatians, but far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and to the world. The Mayo Clinic had another bit of advice on their resource page for self-esteem. They said, when you have low self-esteem, you put little value on your opinions and ideas. You might constantly worry that you aren't good enough. Jesus says in this first beatitude, my disciples aren't good enough. In fact, they're nothing before God. They're empty of self-worth and value. They have no self-esteem. But as such, they possess the most perfect, valuable treasure. They have the most enduring identity of any people that have ever lived in all of human history. They possess the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom. They have eternal life. And they are called the sons and daughters of the living God. 
Jesus graciously works as our Savior, as our Redeemer. We are empty that we might be filled with his grace that brings about esteem for him. We are emptied that our identity would no longer be our self-worth, but in the infinite value and worth of Christ himself. That's our identity in Christ. We are blessed to be given the awareness that we are not good enough for God. Actually, nothing. That awareness presses in on us and we flee to Christ who is good enough. Who, get this, Christ made himself nothing we recited from Philippians 2 in our profession of faith. He made himself nothing. We are nothing. <laughs> but Christ made himself nothing that we would become something, that we would become sons and daughters of the living God. We are emptied of self, filled with his grace, with a growing awareness of esteem for Christ and his cross. A disciple is one who is emptied of self-esteem to be filled with esteem for Christ and his cross. A disciple is one who is a citizen of heaven. We have it all. And who is called the beloved of the Lord. Talking about an identity. Talking about an inheritance. And Jesus says the foundation, the foundation of that is poor in spirit. Let's pray. Father, this in many respects is a hard sermon to preach and a hard sermon to hear. It goes against so much of our own natural tendencies. I personally struggle with this because I'm a can-do kind of a guy. I don't like to be dependent on anyone. And yet what, this, what Jesus tells me is that I'm nothing before God. And that's really hard to hear. But I'm so thankful to hear it. Because no one as Lloyd-Jones said, and we all agree, no one is in the kingdom if he or she is not poor in spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you give us all the, the awareness of our true selves before God, abject spiritual poverty. Give us an awareness of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficiency of his work, the power of his grace, like Isaiah, that brought about healing and wholeness and restoration and propitiation. And Father, our desire is that we would be filled more and more with esteem for Christ and his cross. Lord, this is a picture, the beginning of the portrait of your disciple. Give us spiritual eyes and ears to see it. Give us grace and faith to live according to it. In Christ's name, amen. If you would please take